Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we're quite used to them now, as we've been looking at them for a couple of weeks. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And as I've said, we've been uh, looking at these two verses for the last few weeks. They are two verses which, for us, highlight the nature of Christ. First, first of all, we saw that he was fully man. He's a human being. And in one respect, no different from you and I, to look at at least. Someone who was able to trace his lineage back, the same as you and I can. He could trace his lineage back to David. You know, and then as we saw, as we studied that week, we saw that he could also trace his lineage back to Abraham and then to Adam through Eve, of course. So uh, he had this link to humanity through the woman, which of course is a fulfillment of the promise which God gave to the servant in the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman would bruise your head or destroy your head. So that's the first week we looked at it. The second week we looked at it, we saw that he is not only fully man, but he is fully God. Proven beyond any doubt whatsoever through the resurrection from the dead. And we looked at that uh, last week, and we saw that uh, this gives Jesus the unique qualifications to be our Redeemer, to be the one who would, in his own body, receive the punishment for our sins as he became a sacrifice upon the cross. But not only that, to become our mediator, one who stands between us and God. The Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So he had to be a man because he needs the medi- our mediator needs to represent us perfectly. So he needs to relate to us perfectly. So he needs to know our feelings. He needs to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He needs to know the weaknesses of the flesh in order that he may represent us before the Father. And of course, on the other hand, he needed to be fully God in order to re- represent God to us. You know, and so he needed to be God. He needed to be eternal. He needed to be sinless. He needed to be all the things that God is because he had to, be, he had to um, relate or represent God to us. So there we can see the, the qualifications. We also saw that being human, Jesus was able to bleed and to die. Something that God couldn't do. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that there was something that Jesus couldn't do as the Son of God, and that was to bleed and die. He had to be the Son of Man to do that. And that's the reason why He came. To bleed and to die, which of course, according to the Scriptures, is the penalty for our sin. So He is our perfect substitute. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect sin-bearer. He is the perfect mediator. Why? Because He's God. And because he's man. I've got to be honest. I was tempted to go on to verse 5 tonight at this point. Because there is a little phrase in verse 4. Which is difficult, a bit a bit difficult to understand. And I thought, well, who in Emmanuel would ever hold me to account? 
if I just skipped over that and went on to verse 5 who in Emmanuel would hold me to account you know Eric as you know um, I couldn't jump over it I had to dive in and have a look to see what it entails you know and uh, so before we leave these two verses there is one more phrase that I'd like us to consider in our study tonight you know and this is what it is I declare to be the son of God and we've done that and this is the phrase with power according to the spirit of holiness with power according to the spirit of holiness and that's the phrase that is outstanding that has been left out so far that's the phrase we haven't dealt with in our studies on a Thursday night with power according to the spirit of holiness with power the resurrection has declared Christ to be the son of God with power with power now what does this phrase with power actually mean has it got anything to do with the declaration some people would say it's this is the way that the declaration has been declared he's the son of God with power now I know that there are preachers and there are preachers some as you listen and you know that they are saying amazing things and I can I got a couple in my mind you know perhaps you've got one in your mind they, you know that they are saying amazing things but their presence in the pulpit their mannerisms their deadpan approach brings out the yawns in people rather than the amens you and I can think of a number of people that, that can tell you everything that, the, that you need to know from the Bible and yet you don't listen to one word because the way they tell it is so mundane and you just cannot however hard you try keep your, your attention on what they're saying and you think oh I'll be glad when this is over I'll be glad when you've stopped now I might be sort of digging a grave for myself you know as I look out into the congregation on a regular Thursday and see at least 50% just <laughs> go in it's an hard day it's a working day you'll go for David it's not this week so you got no excuse this week you know and uh, but you know what I mean they can say what they want good stuff but they couldn't hold my attention and if I'd be honest I wouldn't be able to get anything out of it while others and you know this there are others and who can hold you telling the story of Jack and Jill I remember when I was in Barry when um, uh, when we when I was you know we was this fellow called Ronnie Clint uh, he ran the course when I was in Barry and uh, he was teaching us how to preach or to him, showing us how to prepare sermons and stuff so what he did he gave us he said to us look I, I'm going to give you 10 minutes he said everybody 10 minutes to go up the front and give a lecture on anything you want to anything you want to you know one day I went home and I thought what am I going to preach on and I, I sort of give a lecture on the Cambrian explosion 
That was what I was uh, um, sort of did. This other guy, he was an electrician. And he gave a lecture on being an electrician. And I thought to myself, how boring can it be being an electrician and speaking about it like. But as, he, as I sat there, he was the first step. And he had this glue to his every word. Electrician. You know, green wires, yellow wires and red wires. Or green wires, brown uh, and black. They were the men. It was that back, far back. And, you know, every word you hung on. And then up gets, and he comes back and sits down. He's sitting by me. And I, done, I went up and done mine on, uh, on the Cambrian explosion. And then this guy got up and he said, I was in the Merchant Navy. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be great. You know, he's been all over the world. And after about two minutes, I thought, oh, this is going to be a long ten minutes, this is. And this fella by the side, and he had his bit of paper, and he was busy writing. I thought, do easy, do it like. And he, he put down his writing to me, and he read in big letters, isn't this riveting? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one who, who spoke on el- electrical switches and stuff kept you glued. But the one who spoke on something that could really uh, inspire you to travel and stuff like that, oh, it was just awful. Saying great things, probably, but his presence and his demeanor and his actions, I just could not get anything out of it. You know what? It, it hasn't got to be um, dynamic. Not just because a person jumps up and down and runs across the stage and, uh, and shouts and bawls. That doesn't mean to say that he has a powerful ministry. No, because people like that um, can sometimes put people... I remember when Bryn and Jean first came over here <laughs> and they said oh this, the minister we got over there they, he walks up and down the front and I thought oh, that's good and she said it's like watching a tennis match she said you're like yes <laughs> and they, they got nothing so we're not going to be dynamic it isn't going to be jumping about the pulpit you know others can thrill your socks off by just saying what they want to say Telling you great, and there's something about them. It's a we say it's a powerful ministry that they have. You know, when you are riveted to the spot because you're afraid you're going to miss one word, exactly the same word as the other guy said, but you didn't hear him. But this guy, this guy, he would keep you um, fixed on him because you were afraid that you'd miss any word that he would say. A powerful. Ministry. Is this what this phrase means? Is this what this phrase means? Declared to be the Son of God with power. Yes! Paul, powerfully preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's got anything at all to do with this, uh, this little phrase. I think the word declared to be is powerful enough. I don't think it needs another adjective to describe that type of ministry. No, I don't need to get anyone fired up to give my attention on this resurrection story. You know, I think that the words with power refer to Jesus and the consequence of his resurrection. Yes, it's true that Christ 
has always been the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. You know, we've looked in the past, haven't we, about, you know, when we looked at uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, how they treat Jesus and how they uh, demean his name. You know, when we looked at his title before Bethlehem, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the, he was the Son of God before ever Bethlehem took place. In the beginning meant that it was before anything else was created. So we can look back into the eternity past and we can say, Jesus is the Son of God. No, He didn't become the Son of God at His resurrection. That's, not, that's what we've learned so far. He didn't automatically become the Son of God because He rose from the dead. He didn't become the Son of God because He was born in Bethlehem. didn't become the Son of God because He went into heaven. No, He's always been the Son of God. He was here declared to be the Son of God, but that de- declaration was telling us who He has always been. So that would tell me that at Bethlehem, Jesus was the Son of God. You know, when we think about Bethlehem, what do we see? We see a baby in a manger. And a baby in a manger is the Son of God. You know, some 33 years later, we see this sorry, pathetic sight of three men hanging on bloodstained crosses. But that sight included the presence of the Son of God. That's important for us to understand. That wherever he is, and whatever capacity he finds himself, he is the Son of God. You know, Paul says that he humbled himself to be a, a, a man, a servant of men, even obedient to death. But even in that, he is the Son of God. No, but I believe that verse 3, verse 4, as we look at it, is the parallel to verse 3. Christ, the Son of God, veiled in the flesh. That's what the first verse says. According to the flesh, he was of the seed of David. So Christ, the Son of God, veiled in the flesh, speaks of weakness. Of course it does. It speaks of weakness. Does a babe in a manger speak anything else except weakness? No, dependent for survival on mother's milk. Dependent for survival on father's protection. Can you remember when Herod uh, began to get hot under the collar concerning Jesus? Who did God address? Who did he speak to? Did he go to the Son of God and say, Hey son, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get your family and you've got to escape down to Egypt. No, he didn't say that. He said that to Joseph. It was to Joseph that he came in a dream and said, Look, there are people who want to murder my son. I want you, as his father, to pick him up and take him down to Egypt and stay there until I tell you it's safe to come back. He didn't address the Son of God. Why? Because the Son of God was in flesh. And in flesh means he was in weakness. He was in weakness. He spoke to the Father. The babe was helpless. You know, as he lay there in the manger, he was helpless. You know, those wise men, they could have been infiltrators from the east to kill him. Those shepherds, they could have been um, terrorists from the mountains to kill him. You know, he was there. 
after your mercy. Why? Because he was a babe. And because he was helpless. You know, and then when he was conveyed to Egypt for his own safety, he was the son of God. But he had to go for his own safety. And it was Joseph who took him. So we could say, or we couldn't say, that he was the son of God with power. Could we? Because he wasn't the son of God with power. He was the son of God clothed in the flesh. Clothed in the weakness of the flesh. What did Charles Wesley say? Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. You know, and the thing is, unless you have the eyes of your understanding opened by the Holy Spirit, like Simeon did, or like Anna did, or like the wise men did, or like the shepherds did, or like Mary did, unless you had a, a revelation and understanding of exactly who it was in the manger, you wouldn't have recognized him as anything different. Because he was a baby. He was a baby. In a manger. Yet, he was the Son of God. You know, nothing would mark him off as any different to any other baby. In fact, the angel said to the shepherds, Look, look I'm going to send you into the town to see a baby. Now, I don't know many babies within the town at that time, but he said, This is the one, it, he'll be wrapped in swaddling bands. You know, they might have gone to the town and thought, Well, we knew she was pregnant, we saw her pregnant last week, we saw, which one do we go to? You know, and the Jesus was so normal, so natural in the flesh. But the angel had to say, he'll be the one in swaddling bands. So we, we can see it. That uh, Christ, the Son of God, had been sent into the world to bring the plan of redemption to fruition. But he came veiled in flesh. And exhibited the weakness of the flesh. As I said already, being made and made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross is that power? is that the son of God in power? no that's the son of God in weakness that's the son of God in the flesh and that's what he wants us to see he wants us to see God in the flesh in verse 3 and then he wants us to see the contrast of God in resurrection, or Christ in resurrection, in power. You know, we could say that Jesus was almost smuggled into the human race. Displaying all the weaknesses that you and I displayed. And in fact, if you remember, Jesus didn't want his identity bandied about. Even when he healed people, he said, don't tell anybody. And when someone said that you are the son of God, he said, don't say anything. He was smuggled in, under the radar, we would say, into the human race, displaying certain weaknesses. But now, as we come to this verse, Paul wants to bring this contrast alive. And he says, through the resurrection, through the resurrection, the glory returns. The power now becomes evident. In his life. Now it's time for people to see who I am. To understand who I am. They didn't before. But now they can. 
Because here I am. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And alive forevermore. You know, and now we can see that that little baby, that man, that sacrifice upon the cross, is the Son of God with power. With power. And His power has become evident. You know, what did He say to the disciples just after His resurrection? He says, All power, all authority, has been given to me in heaven and earth. You want to follow on from that verse from Philippians. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That's power. That's the Son of God with power. Not with flesh and weakness, but now with flesh and power. We recognize Jesus as the one who was raised in power and exhibits and exerts the power that drives uh, the universe and drives time and will drive eternity. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And that is those that are in heaven and those that are on earth and those under the earth and that every time should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, Paul is saying that what was veiled, what was veiled for 33 and a half years, veiled in flesh, veiled in weakness, has now been revealed. He was the Son of God all the time. We never knew. How did those men feel when they walked the road to Emmaus? They didn't notice it was Jesus. He spoke and his words burned into their spirit. And yet they didn't recognize him. And he said, how did our hearts burn within us? Because he was there all the time. Jesus was with us all the time. He was us moaning and complaining and, and giving him a bit of grief. When all the time he was walking by the side. This is the one we thought would come and redeem Israel. And he was there all the time with them. And they didn't even know it. You can imagine people who come to know the Lord in Jesus' day. You know, and they had rejected him all through his ministry. And then realized. Can you imagine how his brothers must have felt? His brothers were saved after the cross. You know, and they said, he was our brother, man. We, we were brought up with him. We shared bedrooms with him. We didn't know who he was. But now we know that he's the son of God. Risen in power and authority. You know, the, the Jews would say, how could Jesus be the Christ? If he is so easily captured. If he was so easily betrayed. If he was so easily put to death. You know, and such a weakness is an offense to people. You know, if the Messiah should come and ride roughshod over his enemies and cast them out and bring freedom and justice to the world. We don't want this person riding on a donkey. We don't want him being betrayed and uh, being ridiculed in, in, in trials and scorned and mocked and crucified on a cross that made him a curse before God. We don't want any of that. We want a powerful man. How could ever that offence be thought of as the Son of God. But now, through the resurrection, He is the Son of God mm. with power. You are as Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. How could He be 
How could he be if all those things are true of him? To the, to the Greeks, foolishness. How stupid it is to think that he is the son of God himself. But listen to this. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. Not the weakness now. That's gone. We don't know Christ after the flesh. We don't know him in his weakness anymore. Because now he sits on the throne of eternity. Now he is all powerful. Because all authority has been given to him. That he may uh, wield that authority. As the king of kings. And the lord of lords. He is the power of God. And he is the wisdom of God. Christ. Raised in power. And that brings us to the second part of our phrase. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. According to the Spirit of Holiness. I wonder what, how you have thought of this verse uh, in the past. Truly, this is all about the Holy Spirit's activity in his life, his birth, his life, and especially in his resurrection. After all, didn't the angel? Uh, say to Mary that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. So what it says, the Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is born, who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Of course, that Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Because He does all these things. You know, and I, I, I preach from this pulpit that the greatest move that the Holy Spirit has ever impacted upon the world is this one where he brings to birth the Son of God in the womb of Mary or he brings to conception the Son of God in the womb of Mary you know we, we, we know that Pentecost is a big powerful thing and all the, the wonderful moves of the Holy Spirit but you know this is the biggest one where God became flesh and he was instrumental in planting that seed in the womb of the woman you know the same angel said, to, said the same thing to Joseph Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. Surely, surely this is what this verse is about. This little phrase that we look in, according to the spirit of holiness, sounds so feasible uh, when you read it. But you see, that's all well and good. But the phrase we are dealing with in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, the word, the spirit of holiness, it is a unique word in the whole of the scriptures. It's never used before or after. Only once in the whole of the New Testament is this word used. And it isn't attributed to the Holy Spirit, it's attributed to Christ. So this is not the Holy Spirit. We're not dealing with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's ministry in his birth, in his life, in his death and his resurrection you see the Holy Spirit has his own Greek word I'm not going to say the words but uh, the spirit of holiness is a different word than the word Holy Spirit so it can't be the same it can't be the same the Holy Spirit is a person but this is totally different it applies to Christ it applies to Christ this isn't the Holy Spirit now it said that it only occurs once the spirit of holiness but something quite similar occurs a number of times elsewhere in the New Testament for instance if you remember when Peter stood 
on the day of Pentecost and he was about to preach the first ever church age sermon the spirit had come the crowds had gathered mock and scorn and misunderstanding and Peter stands up with eleven and starts to preach and to put people right as to who what is happening and who this person Jesus Christ really is and halfway through his sermon like a good preacher he quotes someone else now you've got to quote someone else if it's not Matthew Henry then you've got to be somebody else you've got, to, you've got to quote if you are anything of a preacher and Peter that first preacher was exactly the same who did he quote? he quoted David the psalmist and this is what he says in, in he quotes Psalm 16 he says for you will not leave my soul in hell nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption notice the phrase holy one and do you know that Paul he also quotes David now I don't know if you've ever been accused of lifting someone else's sermon and that, a fellow came here a couple of years ago didn't he David and he says I'm not going to preach to you some, my sermon tonight he said I'm going to preach to you a sermon I heard on a tape in the car yesterday he was very very honest about this sermon that he was going to preach <laughs> and of course we've all snuck and looked at pe- other people's sermons of course we are and we've all used other people's quotes well Paul he uses the same quote as Peter when he was preaching in Acts chapter 13 he was preaching to the people at Antioch and he uses the same phrase you will not leave my soul in hell neither will you allow your holy one to see corruption you know and Peter and Paul tell us that it's not David who is referred to in Psalm 16 but it's Jesus and the phrase you are holy one is referred to Jesus not to David because David did die his soul did remain in the ground he has rotted away unfortunately but Jesus didn't rot away because God would not allow his holy one to see corruption that's why he was raised on the third day of course because after the third day corruption sets in in the body and that would have you know sort of um, made a mockery of that, this verse they both referred to Jesus you were holy one you know both these sermons are dealing with one thing they are dealing with the resurrection the same as Paul is dealing with you in, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 they are dealing with the resurrection and as we bring our verses in Romans 1 into play we see that Paul is wanting us to draw a contrast between what Jesus was in the flesh what was he? he was of the seed of David that's what he was he was of the seed of David no one today we are far more advanced than Peter or Paul and today we can bring into our, uh, into our evidence the, the science of the DNA do you know what the fact of the matter is that Jesus carried David's DNA in his body 
the genes of David were in the genes of Jesus. You know, the characteristics of David, the traits of David, perhaps even the features of David. Do you know it's quite possible that when we see Jesus, that we will see a resemblance in David? Do you know that? Because he is a son of David. Wouldn't that be strange? That when we look at Jesus and we look at David, there is a, there is a likeness. Because they've got the same DNA, the same genes, and in both of them, the same characteristics, the same traits. You know, I would say that it is most certain that Christ will have quite similar features to Mary. The same as I've got similar features to my mother, to my brother, to my sister. We share the same DNA. We come from the same gene pool. You know what? Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. Of Mary. He wouldn't have Joseph's DNA, but he would have Mary's DNA. He wanted it to be quite strange. Then when we look at Jesus, and we look at Mary, there would be a resemblance. Because they are of the same DNA. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? But what a contrast. What a contrast. That's what he was in the flesh. But listen to Peter again. This time in his epistle he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Now use the contrast. The contrast of the flesh, the seed of David. Of the Spirit, the seed of holiness. That is the DNA of God himself. You see, he's got the DNA of David, according to the flesh. But this little phrase, according to the spirit of holiness, would tell me that he has the DNA of God himself. Holiness. You know, there is no other gene with holiness in it. All from the Adam right up until this very moment in time, there isn't one other person carrying the gene of holiness. Only Jesus has it. And he had it from his father the DNA of God himself but he as he who has called you is holy you also should be holy in all your conduct because it is written be holy for I am holy and here is the source of holiness you know we talk about the holy book this holy place the holy utensils in the temple the holy this and the holy that only because God has invested His holiness into it. And Jesus is holy because He's God. Because He's God. And the resurrection has proved without any shadow of doubt, has made His holiness, His DNA of God, evident and abundant for all to see. Only God is holy. Nothing or no one else is holy Beside it is his unique characteristic that separates him from all and sundry. The Father is a spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of holiness. And so tonight we learn that the Son of God himself, 
is a spirit of holiness. Christ, as regards to his spirit, holiness. See, he bears the traits and the characteristics, and yes, we could say it, even the features of God. And do you know that when we get to heaven and we'll put our eyes on Jesus for the first time, we will see God. Yes, we'll see a, um, a resemblance to David. Yes, it's possible we might see a resemblance to Mary. You know, and we might even see the old lineage with all little bits of Jesus etched in their faces. But more than anything else, when we look at Jesus, we will see God. God, God, God. And that's absolutely... <laughs> that's God saying yes. <laughs> we'll see God himself. You know what, isn't that what we are expecting? We're expecting to see God. You know, and if you remember that same angel who spoke to Mary that I talked about earlier on, he said something else. He said, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who will to be born will be called the Son of God. Holy One, Son of God. Holy One, Son of God. Holy One, Son of God. You know, there's a, a there's something happening here. God is showing us that in the flesh he resembles David. In the spirit he resembles God. Because he is God. Now just to finish very quickly. I want you to notice the words of Peter again. In Acts chapter 2. It says this. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined counsel of God, purposes and foreknowledge of God, you were taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Now listen to this. Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was not possible. You see, Christ died purely because of my sins and yours and the sins of the whole world. That is the sole reason why he died. Notice, not for his own sins. Not for his own sins. You know, had he not taken our sins upon himself, then it would have been impossible for him to die. Because through sin comes death. Through sin comes death. And therefore Jesus died on the cross simply because of sin. The sin that he took upon himself. You know what Charles Wesley said? It is the most amazing thing. The most ununderstandable thing. That the immortal one should die. Who can understand that? But we know that it is because he took upon himself the sins of the world. Had he not taken them, he would not have been able to die. But having borne our sins, death was made possible. He died because of our sins. But having died, having died, 
those sins were paid for those sins were dealt with and therefore there was nothing else that could bind him to that state see he had none of his own that's the beauty of this he had none of his own so when he dealt with you as and when he dealt with mine he was free and being free meant that death had no hold on him anymore no hold at all why? well because he was holy he was holy and so death just could not keep its prey Jesus my saviour he tore the bars away Jesus my Lord do you know that had there been any vestige of sin the tiniest of all left in Jesus then in no way would death have loosened its grip upon him and therefore the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the among the dead has declared Christ holy, victorious triumphant and what's more the true son of God with power according to his spirit of holiness I'm glad I didn't pass over these two little phrases tonight I've got to be honest you know when I looked at them first I thought this is going to be strange because I've never had been able to understand them but I thank God that the power <coughs> speaks of his person in the flesh, in the spirit yes in the flesh he was weak the same as you and I but in the spirit in himself he is the most powerful being of all you know and in the flesh he resembled David but in his spirit he resembles God because he is God and because he is God and he is holy like God then yes he paid for our sins with death but death no longer has any hold upon him. He can laugh at the enemy of death because it cannot touch him because he is holy. And the fact that you know the beautiful thing about it is that we can laugh at the thing called death because now we have Christ in us who is our life. And we set our affections not on the things of the earth, of the earth but the things that are above where Christ sitteth, where he reigns, where he is alive forevermore. Where his victory is proclaimed throughout the whole of the world. Whether it's in, in sp the spirit world or the human world. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.